Good evening, folks, and welcome back on this Saturday, the 23rd day of July, 2022. I'm your host, Mark Hall. And let's start off our look back at what happened this week, not only in chronological order, but arguably, in this case at least, and especially if the Waystream doesn't want us to, in order of genuine importance as well. And furthermore, you could call at least one aspect of it good news. You could certainly call it more proof of what we already knew. And yeah, you could even call it another update on the Darwin Awards. Remember the data that suggests that way, way over 90% of all mass murders with guns just happen to happen in gun-free killing zones? This might be another one of those indicators as to why it's not pretty close to 100%. Now, by the way, before I did this show, I did a quick search online. Gulag, of course, is always going to put the uh, bogus stuff up front, trying to debunk the obvious and basically undeniable, especially if you have any understanding of uh, numbers or even human nature and half a brain. Is it true that 98% of mass public shootings happen in gun-free zones? Well, look at the byline. It's from the WAPO. And uh, no, it's not 98%. It might be 90%. might be 86%. Yeah, folks, they're going to quibble about whether it's well over 90%, almost 100%, or whether or not you're to believe the statistics that come from those that want to ban guns without understanding how they try to rig them. They'll count suicides when that helps. They'll count shootings in self-defense if that somehow helps rig the figures. And oh yeah, they'll try really hard to spin stories like this one today. First though, the best numbers come from one of the best scientist, economist, researcher, and statisticians in the business. Professor John Lott, that President Trump cited, based on a 2014 report, which found that 98.4% of all mass shootings occurred in gun-free zones between 1950 and July 10th of 2016. Since then, and given what we've seen lately, it's hard to argue that anything has changed in that regard. In places that have more gun-free killing zones, no doubt about it, there's a whole heck of a lot more mass murders with the possible exception of the story that I bring you today. Because every now and then, a Darwin Award winner tries to achieve their 15 minutes of fame with a mass murder, but without doing their homework. Either their FBI handler wasn't on the ball, or maybe they didn't even have one. Ooh, that's a big mistake nowadays. Or they failed to ensure that their killing field was truly gun-free. Well, that, of course, is where we start off the news today, with this story from the Greenwood Park Mall in Greenwood, Indiana where a wannabe lone gunman mass murder walked into a food court at the Greenwood Park Mall on Highway 31 south of Indianapolis, armed with a rifle and several magazines of ammunition, and immediately began firing. He was identified, while he lasted, as an adult male. Police have yet to release a motive, although given the idiocy running amok today, you can probably guess half a dozen. Maybe he's just yet another Antifa goon chosen for more gun bans. He was able to kill three people and injure two more during the rampage before being stopped by, guess what? Turns out it wasn't really a gun-free killing zone. A 22-year-old man, ooh, that's awfully close to the cutoff age, who was carrying a licensed lawful firearm. Oops, now this is funny, and it's an example of press slant, even when they don't really know it. Turns out it wasn't a licensed firearm at all. We'll come back to the details there in just a minute. Carrying a firearm is always lawful, folks, if you understand the concept of God-given rights. In this case, it was also legal, just not licensed. 
As of Monday, police have not shared the young man's name. But authorities are already calling the Good Samaritan a real hero because he was able to stop, shoot, and drop the assailant before any further bloodshed or loss of life. This according to Mayor Mark W. Myers in a Facebook post that same evening who said this person saved lives tonight and quote, on behalf of the city of Greenwood, I am grateful for his quick action and heroism. Noting that a citizen lawfully carrying a firearm in the food court was able to stop the shooter almost as soon as it began. Why, it was even over before the SWAT team could show up, surround the scene, and do nothing for an hour or so. And as the week wore on, it became clear that one armed young man exercising his God-given and constitutionally protected rights, and that's also now true in Indiana, was able to do in less than two minutes what almost 400 armed, body-armored, and even SWAT team, in many cases law enforcement officers, failed to do in well over an hour in Uvalde. Now, at this point, folks, I'll pause and suggest there are any number of really interesting aspects to this story, one of which, of course, is you're not going to hear much about it on the gun-banning, anti-constitutional, waste-stream, so-called media outlets that are more concerned with propaganda and politics than they are with the truth. And that makes it really interesting to watch and see how they're going to spin this one. For example, very, very few, with the exception of Fox News, of the major waste-stream media outlets, even mentioned that it was the Good Samaritan that took out the wannabe mass murderer before he could, uh, well, make his bones. NPR, NBC, and the New York Times are typical. Four killed in Indiana mall shooting, says officials. Is all the news that they're going to tell you in the headline, anyway. Three people fatally shot, two injured at an Indiana mall, police say, says NPR, omitting, at least in the headline, the really important fact. Maybe some of them, like evidently the WAPO, will eventually get shamed into changing their headlines and uh, fessing up belatedly, at least, that it was, in fact, a good guy with a gun that once again proved that it had better be a gun-free killing zone if you want to commit mass murder with impunity. They're not going to make that point, as you know darn well. They're also not going to answer a whole bunch of obvious questions that they would be salivating about if this weren't a major contraindicator to their plan to deep-six the Second Amendment and the concept of self-defense for ordinary Americans. Like what kind of handgun was the Good Samaritan packing when he dispatched the wannabe mass murder? Notice that in this case, they don't even advertise the gun that the dead guy had. Huh. All the stories I've seen so far just said a long gun. Not dreaded assault weapon, not sniper rifle, not fully auto or anything else that they don't know and usually are more than inclined to make up. Not even AR-15. And only the Gateway Pundit adds this detail, a new law in Indiana allowing, who could imagine it, folks, actually allowing the Constitution to have some effect. It's called constitutional carry for handguns, and it's for the public, and it went into effect on July 1, uh, just in time. And this, folks, is where I think the definitions and the understanding of statistics and how these things are being rigged and manipulated and twisted really, truly matters. The Greenwood Park Mall, clearly, after the Indiana legislature and governor decided, hey, let's actually allow the citizenry to keep and bear arms, what a concept, was certainly not a gun-free killing zone. But ironically, I've already seen at least one story asking, was the Good Samaritan breaking the law? Was there a sign somewhere saying no guns allowed? Now, isn't that funny, folks? There are actually idiots running around saying if there was a sign, if there was a sign, then we got to prosecute the good guy for saving lives. While they ignore the obvious, the wannabe mass murderers don't pay attention to the damn signs. Well, unless it comes to picking the place where they're going to do their mass executions. Because if it's got signs, it's more than likely a gun-free killing zone. But as the Darwin Award winners here are now making clear, if you really want to kill with impunity, you have to be sure there aren't some concealed carries out there somewhere.
That's why it's helpful to have FBI spotters, I can't help but think. And remember this, too. Over the years, folks, I've had a number of friends who were FFLs or owned gun stores or had concealed carry permits, you name it. And almost all of them will tell you the same thing. Oh, if a concealed carry weapons licensee crosses the line, carries a gun into a building, for example, where there's a sign that says no firearms allowed, you can rest assured of one thing. They may not care about mass murders, but the ATF and a lot of other agencies with three letters in their unconstitutional names will go after those people with tongs, take away their permits, and make sure that they never make the mistake of carrying where there's a sign again. And I'll leave it to the good listener to ponder what the effects of idiocy like that might be when it comes to gun-free killing zones and more mass murders. As for your host, I'll just put it this way. If a building owner is stupid enough to put a sign up that says no firearms allowed, I have no reason to want to go in there, much less do business with people who despise the rights that better Americans than they fought and died for. Now, from there, I want to spend just a couple of minutes talking about some of the so-called fact-checkers who find facts, like somebody actually dispatching a wannabe mass murderer in what turns out not to be an actual gun-free killing zone, distressing to their worldview. So they lie, cheat, twist the numbers, and twist the definitions in order to mandate their tyranny and disarm you so that you can't do anything about it. Case in point, this twisting from the WAPO that tries to make it sound a lot more complicated than it really should be. How many people constitute a mass murder? Is four enough? Over what time frame? And should we or should we not count private homes or maybe drug deals gone bad? And the answer there for the leftists is obvious. Well, it depends on whether or not they help make your case that we want you disarmed. And I'll stipulate up front, as it's probably obvious, except, of course, to Gavin Newsom, that case Nancy Pelosi and Michael Bloomberg, that your average drug lord probably doesn't pay too much attention to the no firearms allowed sign either. But here's where it's appropriate to turn to the WAPO for the, uh, well, twisting par excellence. What is a gun-free zone, they ask? And your host says, nope, wrong question. That's why I define it more properly. A gun-free killing zone, folks. And you'll see in just a second why that's an important distinction. Says WAPO, it's not only the discrepancies between how John R. Lott Jr., the man your host refers to as probably the foremost statistical expert when it comes to gun crimes and self-defense on the planet, and every town for gun safety. That's Michael Bloomberg's disgusting organization that's all about gun bans. Define mass shooting. That contributes to their differing estimates. Oh, really? Do you think? There's also a disagreement about how to define a gun-free zone. You see what I mean? Every town for gun safety reported 16 mass shootings in gun-free zones between 2009 and 2016, while John Lott reported 24. This, they say, is clearly attributed to the difference in definitions. Every town for gun safety, the ones we like, define gun-free zones as, quote, areas where civilians are prohibited from carrying firearms and there is not a regular armed law enforcement presence, unquote. Full stop. What does that mean? One rent-a-cop in a nice uniform? Maybe he gets a donut on occasion, but at least because he's got a uniform, the wannabe mass murderer can know right where he's at and when he's not where the scene of the action needs to be. And if the wannabe mass murderer has an accomplice or half a brain, take him or maybe the both of them out first. Do you see my point? John Lott, though, they say, has a much wider definition. In an email, he defined gun-free zones as, quote, places where only police or military policy are classified, places where it's illegal to carry even a permitted concealed handgun, 
places that are posted, and that references the sign your host has been talking about, as not allowing a permitted concealed handgun, places where general citizens are not allowed to obtain permits, or where permits are either not issued to any general citizens or to only a very tiny selective segment. In other words, think New York City or Chicago, where the only people that are allowed to have a gun permit are those that have the right connections to the city machinery. And you can probably figure something similar applies to A-list celebrities in Hollywood, too. Or at least their properly licensed muscle. And here's where the WAPO story gets funny, and kind of makes your host point, too. In layman's terms, they write, Lot's definition is so wide that even the White House, where there are snipers on the roof, would be considered a gun-free zone. Catch that, folks. Notice, at least if you still think you can trust the Secret Service, not the same as a gun-free killing zone. Lot's data set classifies the shootings that took place at Fort Hood, Texas, and the Washington Navy Yard as having occurred in gun-free zones. Well, one thing's for sure, they were gun-free killing zones now, weren't they? Every town disputed that characterization, wondering, because they're stupid, I guess, how can a place be a gun-free zone if guns are present? Good grief. Guns were present at Uvalde, at Sandy Hook, at the Pulse nightclub. Maybe they need to ask questions like, possessed by who? People that just want to kill and really don't care about the law? Well, it's certainly a gun-free killing zone if the only one there with a gun turns out to be the wannabe mass murderer, who's going to have a hell of a lot easier time now, isn't he? And here I'll go back to John Lott, who defended his assessment and definition, saying this, quote, Regular military members are banned from carrying guns at military bases in the United States, making the bases surprisingly soft targets, he wrote. And by the way, folks, they didn't used to be back when we were a free country. Continued Lott, the only people who can carry guns on domestic bases are military police. So the situation is much the same as the Pulse nightclub. And here your host has to suggest that I think attorneysforgunfreedom.com on their site did a pretty good job of summarizing it, and they in turn credit the Daily Wire for much of the information. They cite the Crime Prevention Research Center, which is John Lott's organization, which says gun-free zones, areas where guns are prohibited, have been the target of more than 98% of all mass shootings. This staggering number is why such designated areas, and again, your host prefers the better term, gun-free killing zones, are also referred to as soft targets, meaning unprotected and vulnerable. And again, I will suggest by design. According to the Crime Prevention Research Center, only a little more than 1% of mass public shootings since 1950 have occurred in places that were not considered to be what they call a gun-free zone. In fact, noted the president of the organization, John R. Lott Jr., in October of 2015, only two mass shootings in the entire United States since 1950 have occurred in an area where the citizenry were not prohibited from carrying a gun. And let me make one more observation on this point today, folks, given that we know what the left is up to. You can also expect these false flags to escalate. So I'll repeat some advice that good Americans have literally understood for decades, if not centuries at this point. If you don't know your rights, you don't have them. And if you're not willing to exercise them, even fight for them when necessary, you might as well not have them either. Back when we still had that quaint concept called trial by jury, there was a saying, better to be judged by 12 than carried by 6. Now, given the insanity that the nation has already descended into, and they intend for it to get a lot worse, folks, the modern phrasing probably goes something like, it's a lot better to have a gun and not need it than it is to not have it when you really need it. Yes, and it used to be this would go without saying, but I guess nowadays you have to say it. You better know how to use it as well. Most of my generation, and I guess this dates me, learned the three rules of firearm safety long before we learned how to drive a car or even a tractor in rural Missouri. 
And I guess now that means we know far more about guns than every single traitorous individual who wants not only to infringe them, but ban them, whether they took an oath or not. And all of that leads me to some more information that didn't come out until later in the week. First, the Good Samaritan hero who acted and saved lives when it really mattered has been identified as 22-year-old Elisha Dickin. He was at the food court when it started to unfold with his girlfriend, saw what was happening, motioned her to safety, and then took position behind an architectural column, which he used to brace his handgun for his shots. Witnesses say he shot from between 30 and 40 yards on the target, firing basically a whole magazine and dropping the perpetrator before he could kill a whole lot of other people. And that, folks, is some tremendous shooting when it mattered most from a guy who was evidently taught to shoot by his family. And as you can imagine, that really upsets the gun banners. And all of this leads me to one final observation on this subject, because I can't help but think, given the number of false flags, given how many times I've joked about it, but in a lot of respects, I'm not kidding, folks, whether we're talking January the 6th or what happened at Las Vegas and the cover-up that followed, you still haven't heard the truth there, or in so many of the other major, high-profile, obviously, in hindsight, false flag events that have been used to destroy the rule of law in this country, undermine the concept of freedom, liberty, and, of course, the right of individuals to keep and bear arms, among a whole lot of other things, good people do need to develop situational awareness, especially in big crowds, and especially if you're anywhere close to a major leftist cesspool city. Obviously, you should stay out of the gun-free killing zones if it's even remotely possible. And if it's not, you probably need to be somewhere else. But I do have to mention this. It's a word of caution. If you're ever at a place where you begin to see something really suspicious unfolding, like a potential mass shooting event, don't assume that it's a lone gunman, as the waystream media would have you believe. Look for the spotters. Look for the accomplices. Look for the handlers. Look for those who are clearing the way for the patsy. Because I guarantee you, they're looking for you. They can't afford too many more events like this one. It's waking too many people up. So on every front, they'll be working really hard to make sure that the intended gun-free killing zones really are gun-free. This next piece comes from investigative reporter John Solomon. And it really does demonstrate one more time that at least a major portion of the real conspiracy theories were true all along. In the final hours of the Trump presidency, he begins, the U.S. Department of Justice, and it's properly pronounced just us, for reasons that this again demonstrates, raised privacy concerns to thwart the release of hundreds of pages of documents that President Donald Trump had declassified in order to expose FBI abuses during the Russia, Russia, Russia alleged collusion probe. And the agency then defied a subsequent order to release those materials after redactions were made, according to interviews and documents. And now the previously untold story of just how those highly anticipated declassified materials never managed to become public is contained in a memo obtained by Just the News from the National Archives that was written by then White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows just hours before President Trump was, uh, well, expelled from an office that it turns out he had actually won if the election had been honest, at noon, January 20th, 2021. Meadows' memo confirmed prior reporting by Justin News that on January the 19th of that same year, President Trump declassified a binder of hundreds of pages of sensitive FBI documents to show how the Bureau used informants and FISA warrants to spy on the Trump campaign and then misled both a federal court and Congress, hey, no surprise here, about flaws in that evidence that they offered to get approval for an investigation that they knew was bogus all along. 
The declassified documents included transcripts of intercepts made by the FBI of Trump aides, a declassified copy of the final FISA warrant approved by the so-called Intelligence Court, and the tasking orders and debriefings of the two main confidential human sources. Uh, some would say co-conspirators, Christopher Steele and Stephen Halper. That the Bureau used to investigate, sick, whether or not Trump had colluded with Russia to steal, no, not the 2020 election, the one that actually wasn't stolen because Dominion couldn't rig enough votes. And this was before they had at least 2,000 mules to do the really dirty work of making the copies and stuff in the ballot boxes. In the end, it says multiple investigations found there was no such collusion and that the FBI violated rules and misled the FISA court in an effort to what? Commit treason? Keep the probe going is how this phrases it. The key takeaway is that the documents Trump declassified never saw the light of day. And, of course, the American people never saw them either, even though they were lawfully declassified by the president and the DOJ was instructed by that president through Mark Meadows to expeditiously release them after redacting so-called private information as necessary. His memo said, I am returning the bulk of the binder of declassified documents to the Department of Justice, including all that appear to have a potential to raise privacy concerns, with the instruction that the department must expeditiously conduct a Privacy Act review under the standards, (laughs) there's a concept, that the Department of Justice would normally apply, redact material appropriately, and release the remaining material with redactions applied. He wrote, and guess what, folks? You know darn well, it never happened. Just the News obtained the memo after going to the Trump collection at the National Archives and asking them to look for the binder of documents Trump had declassified. And the archives claimed they did not possess the documents. The Justice Department did, and they provided that copy of Meadows' memo to prove it. In a Tuesday night interview on a Just the News Not Noise TV show, Meadows said he was dismayed that the DOJ ignored a lawful instruction from a sitting president and said all of this was part of a larger dynamic in which the permanent federal bureaucracy repeatedly tried to undercut the duly elected president to protect itself. Well, you know, said Meadows, the swamp is pretty deep. And when Trump got there, he added, he realized not only was the swamp very deep, but that they would fight back. And now, folks, we know that they're willing to commit mass murder to stay in power, too. On just about every front, you can imagine. Liz Harrington, Trump's spokeswoman, told Just the News that the DOJ's failure to release the memos fits a pattern of political abuse inside an agency that was supposed to be above politics. And yeah, how's that for a laugher? The Just Us Department and the FBI both declined a request for comment. And former Pentagon Chief of Staff Cash Patel, who worked as Chief Investigative Counsel for the House Intelligence Committee when it unraveled the false Russia-Russia narrative under then-Representative Devin Nunez, said Tuesday that the DOJ's defiance of a lawful presidential order not only compounded the FBI and department's failings during the original probe, by preventing the American public from having transparency, but of course they also, interject your host, compounded their various criminal acts. And further, their hypocrisy, he said, is on full display. Tom Fitton of Judicial Watch, referencing some of the lawsuits that they've got in progress concerning this cover-up, noted that the DOJ, quote, did the runaround to try to protect themselves from being exposed because the documents, to be clear, relate to the improper targeting of Trump and his associates that we know is based on politics and animus as opposed to national security or anything substantive. And in the end, he continued, what the FBI came up with was a lie. 
Former Trump advisor David Bossy, head of the Citizens United Watchdog Group, now said that the episode is a pointed reminder that the permanent bureaucracy in Washington just wields too much power when it can thwart the actions of a duly elected president. And this, he said, is what President Trump ran against, the deep state. These are deep state actors that the American people don't understand really what it's about, but it's the people who are the permanent class in Washington. They don't do what they're told. They don't do what they're ordered to do. And so when President Trump says to a bunch of bureaucrats to go do something, they sit on their hands, especially at the last minute, unquote, especially when they believe that the election rigging is going to save them. Said Bossy, this was a conspiracy against the president within our own government. Finally, the story ends with Mark Meadows, who says if or when the documents are finally released, they'll provide compelling evidence that the Democrats and FBI, who assured the public about Russia, 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 and the so-called conspiracy, knew they were lying. In fact, folks, it was a projection. They accused the president of doing what they knew blankety-blank and well they were guilty of, and how many times do we have to see that big lie being repeated? So as we head to the bottom of the hour break, I'll summarize some of the big news. Bad things are still happening, but through them, sometimes the truth really shines out. And we'll be right back. When I think back on all the crap I learned in high school, it's a wonder I can think at all. And my lack of education hasn't hurt me. Welcome back now to the second segment for this evening. I am your host, Mark Hall, and we'll start this one off with a bit more news that seems to have gotten to be more or less routine nowadays, in that it reaffirms that the uh, people who are running the country, not the elected representatives, certainly, not the government that the Constitution once said we were supposed to have, a republic, madam, if you can keep it, and we couldn't, no, something entirely different, they're no longer trying to hide it, that's no longer news. But the evidence that they want to destroy all remaining vestiges of that form of government are increasingly undeniable. Let's start off with a few headlines to make the point. During a congressional hearing, the man, sick, whose only qualification for Secretary of Transportation is what he does in the bedroom, not on the job, Pete Butt is gay, has again come right out and said what we all knew. During a congressional hearing, Buttesgay said that the more pain Americans experience from high gas prices, the more benefit there is for those who want to destroy their ability to move around the country freely, i.e., for those who can access electric vehicles. And guess what, folks? When they get their way and the power grid goes down, you won't be one of them. Quote, The more pain we are all experiencing from the high price of gas, the more benefit there is for those who can access electric vehicles. To which, correctly, Representative Thomas Massey noted, the average household in the United States uses 1,870 kilowatt hours per year for air conditioning. Folks, that's just air conditioning alone, and that doesn't include some of us who are in climates that don't need it. If that average household was to plug in electric cars instead, continues the congressman, it would take at least four times as much electricity just to charge the average household's cars as they use on air conditioning. 
And guess what? That power grid capacity, as you're seeing now writ large, does not exist. But don't worry, you were never intended to be able to drive an electric car. That was just a scam. Oh, they do want to control and track your movements, and that part of the plan is for real and right on track. But it's the pain part of the equation that he's talking about that's very, very real and also just exactly as planned. I love it when a plan comes together. <laughs> Censorship, destruction of the rule of law, and of course destruction of everything even remotely scriptural is also a part of the plan. Pink News, an appropriately named LGBTQ++ so-called media outlet, has praised Reddit for deciding to censor the term groomer because it describes exactly what they intend to do to young prepubescent individuals because they describe the term groomer as an anti-LGBTQ plus slur and they're calling on other socialist media platforms to cave in as well and also ban the hateful phrase. Kind of makes your host wonder what term is next on the banned and censored list. Will it be pedophilia or bestiality? Oh, yeah, and they don't want you talking about transgenderism as being a mental illness of any sort, and they arguably never even knew what gender dysphoria was to begin with, or to even be allowed to quote the suicide rates among so-called transgender people who later wake up for real and realize they've made the biggest mistake of their lives. Working to prevent suicides is also obviously hateful. On then to another story of what was once the U.S. military where the Air Force seems to have said the hell with a federal judge in any ruling that prevents us from doing what we intend to do, which is destroy the Air Force, and it's pressing ahead with discharges and other disciplinary action against good airmen who knew better than to take the Zyklon B injection and refused. On July 14th of this year, Judge McFarland from the Southern District of Ohio ordered a temporary injunction against the Air Force preventing any unit within that Department of the Air Force from discharging or conducting punitive actions against any service member who has applied for a religious accommodation from the COVID-1984 vaccine, which isn't a vaccine, certainly isn't truly approved, nor can they be ordered to take it. But the Air Force seems to have said, to heck with that, we've got a military service to destroy. And as Tucker Carlson pointed out on his show late last week, when he talked to Master Sergeant Nick Cupper, this is not an isolated incident either. Related story. Seems like the U.S. Congress doesn't really care about the Constitution either. Senator Rand Paul on Tuesday, according to Steve Watson and Summit News, warned that the Senate shockingly, as he put it, rejected his efforts to reaffirm the Constitution when it comes to declarations of war, which, of course, if you've been paying attention, hasn't actually happened since the day after December 7, 1941, noting that NATO does not have the authority, at least not really, to supersede Congress or the U.S. Constitution. Paul's comments came after the Senate Foreign Relations Committee backed the accession of Finland and Sweden into NATO ahead of a full vote coming up in the Senate on that expansion, the first of its kind in three decades, which could happen next week and will probably be yet another major straw on the broken back of a camel heading roughshod into World War III. Since Russia has warned for a long time that the move will lead to further confrontation. While other members of the committee verbally voted with either a yes or no, Rand Paul voted a neutral present and proposed an amendment that would emphasize that only the United States Congress has the constitutional authority to declare war. And shockingly, he said, that affirmation was immediately rejected by the Senate traitors. And let's not forget for a minute, folks, that this is the same Congress that seemed poised to approve the NDAA containing the shift for brains provision, a.k.a. House Bill 4350, with that literally traitorous amendment to remove domestic operations against U.S. citizens from any oversight in that same Congress. 
And here's the irony in that. The smokescreen here is that you think Schiff is only trying to cover up whatever the military was up to on January 6th and why they allowed the coup to take place. And that debacle in Afghanistan, too. They want to cover that up. But oh no, that was just the beginning. There's a whole lot more. And the intent here is to make sure you never hear about any of it and that there's no oversight whatsoever. Because the real treason is to use the U.S. military domestically on U.S. soil. The founders called it a standing army, by the way, against the American people. And here's the kicker. If you don't like it, or if anybody in the military doesn't like it, or anybody actually honors that oath that they took to the Constitution as opposed to the dictator-in-chief, well, they're an extremist insider threat. Und ja, we know what that means. Those who ignore the lessons of history are absolutely condemned to repeat it. From there, let's go to the continuing, well-planned and well-executed economic meltdown and global systemic destruction of the almighty fiat dollar. This piece from Zero Hedge says, Existing home sales in the U.S. have plunged in June as, uh, I hope you're sitting down, affordability has collapsed. On the heels of ugly home builder sentiment, it begins, and amid tumbling single-family home starts and permits, analysts expected existing home sales to extend their recent decline with maybe a 1.1% month-over-month drop in June. They were right in direction, but really wrong when it comes to magnitude, because existing home sales slumped 5.4% month-over-month in June. It's a collapse, and that's the fifth straight month of existing home sales declines. Home sales now are down a stunning 14. 2% year over year. And as NAR chief economist Lawrence Young put it, both mortgage rates and home prices have risen too sharply in too short a span of time. We'll follow that up today with a couple of comments from arguably the best author ever to write about the Federal Reserve, G. Edward Griffin, author of The Creature from Jekyll Island, who says that, clearly, the Federal Reserve is the cause of inflation. When you have a central bank that creates as much money as it wants to, it's a scam. And he contends that the Federal Reserve today is intentionally trying to drive down the value of the U.S. dollar in an effort to transition into what they planned for so long, the cashless and completely controllable monetary system. Describing the unholy alliance, the public-private partnership between Big Brother and Big Banksters, he explained in an interview with Stansbury Research that financial institutions work hand-in-hand with the government in order to achieve full control of purchasing power, and he calls it a banker's dream, a cashless society. Scripture, of course, calls it the mark of the beast. This next story comes via Technocracy News and other websites by Dr. Marty McCary of John Hopkins School of Medicine and Dr. Tracy Beth Hogue, an epidemiologist with the Florida Department of Health, who warned that U.S. so-called, get this irony, public health agencies aren't, and this is a real shocker, oh yeah, following the science, say any number of officials who find that they're being silenced for daring to point that out. The calls and text messages it begins are relentless. On the other end are doctors and scientists at the top levels of various Health agencies, including the NIH, FDA, and CDC, they're variously frustrated, exasperated, and alarmed about the direction of the agencies to which, up until now at least, they've devoted their careers. Said one, quote, it's like a horror movie I'm being forced to watch, and I can't close my eyes. This from a senior FDA official who lamented that people are getting bad advice, and we can't say anything, unquote. 
That particular FDA doctor, they note, was referring to two recent developments inside the agency. First, how? With no solid clinical data, and in fact, folks, it's closer to the exact opposite of that, the agency authorized the COVID Zyklon B poke, not vaccines, for infants and toddlers, including those who already had COVID, which is not just medical malpractice, it's arguably aggravated assault. And second, the fact that just months before that, the FDA bypassed their own external experts to authorize the deadly booster shots for young children. That doctor says the piece is hardly alone. At the NIH, doctors and scientists complain to these two authors about low morale and lower staffing. The NIH's Vaccine Research Center, sick, has had many of its senior scientists leave over the last year, including the director, deputy director, and chief medical officer. Quote, they have no leadership now. Suddenly there's an enormous number of jobs opening up at the highest level positions, said one NIH scientist. And here comes a disclaimer. The people who spoke to us, they said, agreed only on condition of anonymity citing fear of, oh yeah, guess what, professional repercussions, or perhaps in this environment, worse. The CDC, they say, has experienced a similar exodus. Quote, there's been a large amount of turnover. Morale is low, said one high-level official at the Center for Death and Control. Things have become so political, so what are we there for? Another scientist at the CDC told us, I used to be proud to tell people I worked at the CDC. Now I'm embarrassed, unquote. And you know what, folks? Sad as that might be, he ought to be. But why are they embarrassed, say the authors? In short, bad science. The longer answer, that the heads of these agencies are using weak or flawed data, or your host will put one more thing in there, they won't come right out and say, yet they're lying outright through their damnable, bribable, coercible teeth to, quote, make critically important public health decisions. And that such decisions are being driven by what's politically palatable to people in Washington or to the Biden regime, and they have a myopic focus on one virus instead of overall health. And again, arguably, all of that is an understatement, but at least it's encouraging to see somebody in the medical profession come right out and admit what everybody knows, and that's why they ought to be so embarrassed, or worse, indicted. Nowhere, though, has this problem been more clear or the stakes higher, say the authors, than when it comes to official public health policy regarding children and COVID. First, they demanded that young children be masked in schools. On this score, the agencies were wrong. And then again, that's too charitable. Compelling studies later found schools that masked children had no different rates of transmission. And for social and linguistic development, children need to see the faces of others. All I can add is... Duh, and you would have thought that would have been obvious to anybody with half a brain, which pretty well eliminates most so-called public health officials, at least those that didn't have the good sense to resign two years ago. Well, anyway, say the authors, next came school closures. The agencies were wrong again, and catastrophically so. Poor and minority children suffered learning loss with an 11-point drop in math scores alone and a 20% drop in math pass rates. There are dozens of statistics of this kind. And then they ignored natural immunity. Wrong, wrong, wrong. Again, the vast majority of children have already had COVID, even if many of them didn't really even notice the effects. But it's made no difference in the blanket mandates for schools and childhood vaccines. And now, by mandating vaccines and boosters for healthy young people with no strong supporting data, let's be honest, folks, with no actual data at all except for the fact that it kills them, these agencies are only further eroding public trust. You see the problem with this piece? They're on track, but they're understating the evil. 
Still, though, folks, I'm doing the story because it's a very important piece, and it's better late than never. One CDC scientist, they write, told us about her shame and frustration about what happened to American children during the pandemic. They spelled it wrong. Quote, CDC failed to balance the risks of COVID and other risks that come from closing schools. Mental health exacerbations were obvious early on, and those worsened as the guidance insisted on keeping schools virtual. CDC guidance worsened racial equity for generations to come. It failed this generation of children, unquote, and again, true, but a gross understatement. It's trying to kill them, folks. An official at the FDA put it this way. I can't tell you how many people at the FDA have told me I don't like any of this, but I just need to make it to my retirement, unquote. So this is how liberty dies, with thunderous applause. Or with the quiet acquiescence of Nazi prison camp guards and public health officials who all just want to make it to retirement. Right now, they say, and this is without question correct, internal critics of these agencies are focused on one issue above all. Why, oh why, did the FDA and the CDC issue strong blanket recommendations for COVID vaccines in children? I'd say the answer is obvious. They want them dead. And the facts, the truth, and science have nothing to do with it. But let's see what the authors say. Three weeks ago, the CDC vigorously recommended the mRNA COVID Zyklon B injections for 20 million children under the age of five. Dr. Rochelle Walensky, may her name be forgotten, director of the Center for Death and Control, declared that the mRNA COVID vaccines, sick, should be given to everyone six months or older because they are, say it with me, folks, and try not to throw up, Safe and effective. The trouble is, this sweeping recommendation was based on, they say, extremely weak, inconclusive data provided by Pfizer and Moderna. And, of course, the real truth is they hid the really damning data that shows just how deadly these things really are and the other nasty and often permanent side effects. And I'm going to skim over some of this because you've heard it all before, but at least it helps make their case. Start with Pfizer, they say, using a three-dose vaccine in 992 children between the ages of six months and five years. Pfizer found no statistically significant evidence of vaccine efficacy, and so forth and so on. And what they're ignoring is that they did find and then hid significant evidence of, well, let's just say lots, lots far worse stuff. Some of it having nothing to do with COVID, but certainly having a lot to do with dead kids, sterile kids, and disabled kids. Still, though, referring to the so-called efficacy of Pfizer's vaccine in healthy young children, one high-level CDC official whose expertise is in the evaluation of clinical data joked thusly, you can inject them with it or squirt it in their face and you'll get the same benefit, unquote. And let's be honest, folks, you're better off squirting it in their face. Unless it blinds them, they probably won't suffer nearly as badly as those who got it stuck into their bodies. Moderna's results, and I won't go through the details, weren't much better. And then there's the matter of how long the vaccine gives so-called protection. At best, we know from data in adults, they say, it's generally a matter of months, but we have no such data for young children. Quote, it seems criminal that we put out the recommendation to give mRNA COVID vaccines to babies without good data. We really don't know what the risks are yet. So why push it so hard, said a CDC physician. Another high-level FDA official felt the same way. Quote, the public has no idea how bad this data really is. It would not pass muster for any other authorization. Unquote. And that, folks, says it all. 
And yet, still the FDA and CDC pushed it through. This slap in the face of science may explain, say the authors, why only 2% of parents of children under the age of 5 have chosen to inject them with the deadly damnable stuff. Now, the COVID vaccine, they write, and 40% of parents in rural areas say their pediatricians did not recommend the COVID vaccine for their child. I'm going to ask it, what's wrong with the other 60%? This isn't the first time, though, that COVID vaccine recommendations based on scant evidence have been pushed through these, and I'll say it again, satanically evil, unconstitutional, and downright deadly. Did I miss anything? Three-letter agencies. Most recently, back in May, the lack of clinical evidence for booster shots in young people created a stir at the Federal Death Agency. The White House, though, promoted it hard even before FDA regulators, sick, had even seen any data. Once they saw the data, they weren't impressed. (laughs) Oh, yeah? It showed no clear benefit against severe disease for people under 40. And, says the FDA's two top vaccine regulators, Dr. Marion Gruber, director of the FDA's vaccine office, and her deputy director, Dr. Philip Krauss, quit the agency last year over political pressure to authorize so-called vaccine boosters in young people. After their departure, she wrote scathing commentaries explaining why the data did not support the broad booster authorization, arguing in the WAPO that, quote, the push for boosters for everyone could actually prolong the pandemic, unquote. And, hey, do you think maybe that's the real point? Citing concerns that boosting based on an outdated variant could be and is intended to be. I keep saying this, folks. This is so blatantly obvious. It's funny how they understate the case. Anyway, pushing these boosters could be, quote, counterproductive, said a CDC scientist to the authors. It felt like we were a political tool. (laughs) Ah, do you think? That insider, they note, went on to explain that he got vaccinated early on, but chose not to get boosted based on the data. Ironically, that same person was unable to go on a trip with a group of parents because proof of being poisoned, uh, boosted, was required. Quote, I asked for someone to show me the data. They said the policy was based on the CDC recommendation. Unquote. And one NIH scientist told us there's a silence, an unwillingness for agency scientists to say anything, even though they know that some of what's being said out of the agency is absurd, unquote. I can't emphasize it strongly enough, folks. These people, in keeping silent, are culpable, and they are, in fact, evil. And they deserve the shame that should be heaped upon them. And, of course, when they get to their, let's put it this way, eternal reward... They're going to have a far worse question to answer, which makes these quotes really damning in hindsight. That was a theme we heard over and over again, say the authors. People felt like they couldn't speak freely, even internally within their agencies. Quote, you get labeled based on what you say. If you talk about it, you will suffer. I'm convinced, said an FDA staffer. Another person at that same agency added, if you speak honestly, you get treated differently. Unquote. Well, you know what, folks? That's better than what they're doing to those dupes who are being destroyed because of their silence, write the authors, so they remain quiet, speaking to each other in private or in text groups on Signal. One subject these doctors and scientists feel passionately about, but they feel they cannot bring up, is natural immunity. Why, they wonder, are we insisting on immunizing children who've already got some immunity to the disease due to having contracted COVID? I'll say it again. The answer is obvious. They want them dead. And you people think that these agencies are doing something different than what they really are. 
As of February, 75% of children in the U.S. already had natural immunity, note the authors, from a prior infection. It could easily be over 90% of children in today's society, given how ubiquitous Omicron has been since then. The CDC's own research shows that natural immunity is better. Gee, do you think? Than vaccinated immunity, or what they're calling it. And a recent New England Journal of Medicine study from Israel has questioned the benefits of vaccinating previously infected persons. Are you crazy? Or just plain stupid? Stupid as stupid does, Mr. Blue. I guess. Many countries have long credited natural immunity towards vaccine mandates, but not the United States. And you know why, folks. There's another agenda. In this, the leaders, sick, of the so-called American health agencies made the U.S. an international outlier in how it treats children. And again, I'll say it, there's an obvious reason. Sweden never offered vaccinations to children under 12. Finland limits COVID vaccines to children under 12 who are at high risk. The Norwegian Institute of Public Health has appropriately stated that, quote, some children may benefit, but previous infection offers as good a protection as the vaccine against reinfection, and so forth and so on. It's statistically impossible, say the authors, for everyone who works inside of our health agencies, sick, to have 100% agreement about such a new and naughty subject. But the fact that there's no public dissent or debate can only be explained by the fact that they are, or at least they feel they are, being muzzled. It's an ancient moral requirement, conclude the authors, of our profession to speak up when we believe questionable treatments are being proposed. It's also good for the public. Imagine, for example, a world in which those scientists who suggested masking for children in school lockdowns were worse for public health were not smeared, but instead debated. Yeah, isn't that amazing? Not in America post-2020. And here's their bottom line. The official public health response to COVID has undermined the public's belief in public health itself. Again, a gross understatement. This is a terrible outcome with potentially disastrous consequences. Perhaps not as bad, though, as the mass execution of so many people. Back to the two doctors, though. For one thing, because of these sloppy and politicized policies, we run the risk of parents rejecting routine vaccines for their children. Uh, You'd have to be stupid at this point to allow these satanic hosts to put anything into your children, folks. Even if we think or know that they're effective, safe, and life-saving. The leaders of the CDC, FDA, and NIH should welcome internal discussion, even dissension, based on the evidence. And silencing physicians, they say, is not following the science. Less absolutism and more humility by the men and women running our public health agencies would go a long way in rebuilding public trust. No, folks, what would rebuild public trust is a few trials followed by executions for mass murder. And nothing short is ever going to make a real difference. Nor should it. This kind of power should never, and in fact really never was, constitution anyway, put in these agencies to begin with. And therein lies a big part of the problem. Lord Acton had it right. Power corrupts, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. And what's being done has nothing to do with fostering public health. And your host can't help but suggest that as people begin to wake up to something that simple, that obvious, the rest of the pieces, too, ought to begin to fall into place. Hopefully in time for some of them to survive. <laughs>